Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Resident Evil Apocalypse. Or... Someone call the Pope! <laughs> uh, hello everyone, and welcome to the next installment of your mini-episode, mini-series on a maximally amazing horror movie and anthology, epic, sweeping saga, poem of legend... Paul W.S. Anderson's Resident Evil Apocalypse Mila Jovovich vehicle sensation. Uh, I, I, I I agree. Oh, hello. The, the, the Beowulf <laughs> of horror cinema. <laughs> oh, tr truly, truly, this this puts Beowulf to shame in terms of its place in, in history and storytelling. But I'm Ash. Uh, you're one of your co-ghosts in, in this uh, haunted hayride of fun, uh, joined as always by... Hey everybody, how are we doing? It's John. I am super excited to be back to talk more about Resident Evil. Who wouldn't be? And today we're talking about the second movie in the Resident Evil franchise, uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse. But before we get to that, first, a quick word from our sponsors. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves. It's wolf. 20,000 years. Ten times you're fucking Christian era. So the one thing about this movie that I think is uh, quite quite possibly its most interesting feature is that this is, I, I think this would count as a, a, an ecologically sound, or perhaps if we're being a bit more cynical, green capitalism movie, due to the nose-to-tail editing that we see throughout the film. Uh, the first 10 minutes, approximately, are all shots from the first Resident Evil movie. To the point where I, I was a little worried that I I bought the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I think that that betrays a kind of charming trust in the audience because clearly they thought people were going to go and watch this and go, but how will I possibly understand if I haven't seen the first one? So they just decided <laughs> to basically show you the first movie in the second movie. It's very considerate, very considerate. It's uh, it's it's all the bravery of Silent Night, Deadly Night Two going on in here. If only Milo Jovovich would have like <laughs> looked at the camera and screamed, "It's garbage day!" <laughs> but honestly, I I, th I think this might be because of where this movie is situated. Um, and this is this is like a weird comparison, but where this movie is situated in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, I think, really important. Because uh, this uh, was this was before superhero movies were kind of the bog standard for your like. Uh, adjacent nerd culture action cgi computer extravaganza films mm -hmm. yeah uh and this was this was before that was like commonplace because like now you don't really need to do the whole origin story you don't need to recap when we see a bunch of weird stuff on screen it's like yeah sure uh the this bioengineered mila jovovich has psychic powers and is part zombie or something whatever that's fine <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't go. We talked about this actually in talking about the first one, where, like, people going in and going, oh, but, 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 
logically, the corporation would never be behave like that. It's like, I don't go to the Resident Evil film series for, you know, facts and logic. <laughs> that's, 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 that's not why I'm there. Yeah, Re Resident Evil doesn't care about your facts and logic. It, it really doesn't. It's interested in deeper truths. Um, I've, I've got to be honest right off the bat that I didn't, I didn't enjoy this one as much as the first one. Um, and the, there are two reasons for that, I think, which is, firstly, this isn't directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Um, so it, it honestly, I think a big problem with this is the, the action scenes just aren't as good. You know, he, he cut his teeth doing Mortal Kombat, um, a really solid action director, director I think. Uh, and secondly, the biggest problem with this is that they tried to do non-visual, non-dialogue non related um, storytelling. In the first one, everything is, the entire plot is advanced through expositional dialogue. And the expositional dialogue is the only dialogue. Um, and they, they decided that, you know, they were going to investigate uh, non-dialogue related storytelling. And it just doesn't work as well, right? I, I do I do love that the first Resident Evil movie works entirely as a radio play. Like the, vi yes. the visuals are really just kind of like they're they're an additional treat. They're they're the toppings on my ice cream. I don't necessarily need them, but they're great to have. And, and yeah, for this one, it, it was I, this is this is maybe my least favorite in the entire uh, you know Mila Jovovich Resident Evil series. Um, it's just kind of like a bunch of hollow set pieces. It, it lacks. Yes the the fun and excitement of the other resident evil movies up until the end um you know like like that like the last couple bits of this one are fun and exciting and interesting um mm -hmm. and the whole lead up to that is just kind of like eh, there's some stuff missing in this one yeah it i think i agree with you it feels this one feels quite hollow in comparison to the first one um, especially as someone who who has, I I am not I am not a capital G gamer. I have never gamed, um, uh, so I've never played any <laughs> of the games. And uh, and a lot of this, a lot of this, I was like, oh, I bet that's a thing because that's a thing in the games. That's the only that's the only kind of reason that I could think of them including it. And and so the thing about that is is like kinda. You know, like, that's another one of my problems with this one is, like, trans translating video games and into film is an incredibly difficult task. And that's because video games have player agency, right? Like, Resident Evil can either be the story of a, a hero's brutal conquest through a, through a zombie-infested hell uh, closer to Doom, or it could be a tale of of bare survival against insurmountable horror right like both are true yeah. to the resident evil experience um and i think this one instead of following one of those paths because i think the first movie takes an interesting choice right like it, it, it takes that empowered kind of like doom-esque hyperviolence and then plays into like the corporate mystery and intrigue that that is part of what makes resident evil so fun but i think this one like it just kind of like grabs a couple iconographic items you know, you have like Nemesis being dropped in by a helicopter and then like eh, kind of diffuses. Yeah, I think so. Um, one thing I will say, one thing I will say is that 
Um, as a documentary about the functional uselessness of American political institutions, it's pretty on the nose. Um, if you want a kind of example <laughs> of what is the kind of micro level state like under the auspices of neoliberal economic policy, this is a great example. So um, as soon as the outbreak reaches Raccoon City um, and people realize, hey, that, that mysterious power drain where literally thousands of people worked underneath the city, maybe we should have looked into that. Um, basically, uh, it seems that all infrastructure has been privatized, right? So the only thing that can happen is Umbrella can be called in to, to do a lockdown of the city. And um, I've, I've got to be honest, watching watching that kind of opening, what, what would you say, probably about opening 30, 45 minutes where we get to see what an umbrella-style lockdown looks like. Watching that in the age of COVID cinema it was a weird experience, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's like, and we were saying this in our first episode, like COVID, COVID cinema is already here because it's already inside of us, you know, just like the T-virus. Like, we're, we're infected with, with our culture, right? We have to see the world through this lens. And it was kind of like, what was jarring to me is that they were able to mobilize an effective containment response. You know, and we'll go on, we'll go on to find out just how well that worked out for them in the next episode. But like, you know, like I, I'm sitting here, you know, in a world where like sporting events are still open, bars are still, everything is still open. Nothing is meaningfully closed in the United States, you know, and, and in other countries as well. Like the effort to, to actually respond to coronavirus is hampered by capital. And like yeah. to, to watch the entire town get locked down, I'm like, nah, they wouldn't do that. They would be like, <laughs> go 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 to Pizza Hut, but put on your like Twitch and Fortnite themed anti zombie padding before you go get your pizza or something. Like, be responsible. I was I was just thinking about the uh, the scene at the the bridge, and uh, I was like, this is super unrealistic because we know that now what there would be there would be like a load of protesters there talking about how like it's not a it's not a pandemic it's a scamdemic <laughs> there would be like the raccoon city version of alex jones like yelling at soldiers and trying to tell people that they're all crisis actors until he got shot in the face and i feel like they missed a trick not including that yeah i mean it definitely definitely lacked the foresight <laughs> that we have today <laughs> I, I am really like, excited for the inevitable zombie crisis actor movie, though. Like, I feel like that has to be some around the corner in someone's heart. Oh, completely. Um, but like, in all seriousness, like watching this in 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 the UK, which has been singularly useless at containing this, um, and has made every decision based on the dictum that like sacrificing the poor, the vulnerable, and the elderly in particular for the economy is totally fine. Watching watching the sequence where they kind of lock down a city um, was was really surreal because it totally underscored what you're talking about, right? The countries that have handled COVID the best have generally been countries which are kind of skeptical or actively hostile to the regimes of neoliberal capitalism, right? China has handled it uh, incredibly well, Vietnam... Uh, I'm sure I'm missing it. I'm missing a few, but those are the two biggest ones. And so the way that lockdowns are discussed over here is, oh, oh, right, we should minimize the lockdown because because of the economy. And there's a lot of like xenophobia 
particularly about how China has handled locking down um, often millions of people. Mm-hmm. But but like results don't lie. <laughs> I'm watching this. There's a bit of me that's like, they're effective at least, you know? I mean, they might be private military contractors who are happy to shoot civilians in the street, but like, at least they're not telling people they have to. They have to go go out to the local pizzeria um, because die for the economy. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's the only part about it that I thought was like startlingly interesting. You know, or at least accurate was that we have private military contractors gunning down people who are trying to escape from the pandemic. And that's the only part where I'm like, yeah, no, I could see it. Yeah, totally. totally. I, I could see the Amazon security forces preventing people from leaving prime citizen district three. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if functionally, it seems like umbrella already controls. Like, this is the thing that kind of, I don't think we kind of talk about enough, which is that essentially the state uh, is, is sort of, uh, functionally useless because so many of its functions have been outsourced to private capital. So, like, essentially what's going to happen, and you saw this when Amazon were talking about their new headquarters um, last year, mm-hmm. what you'll have is you'll basically have the Amazon state. You know, they'll have so much power over things like tax revenue, over housing. Uh, Bezos is really interested in education. Um basically because what they want to do is guarantee a fixed labor supply over generational scales, right? So they want, you know, you'll go to the Amazon, you'll send your kids to the Amazon school, they'll go into the Amazon graduate program. Like, so uh, one thing that I think maybe gets glossed over when talking about these is these films is that they are actually kind of talking about what, what what's really interesting to me is that the government doesn't really exist in these films. And I think I think what's worth highlighting in this is the same thing that we talked about during our RoboCop um, episode. And that's, you know, RoboCop wasn't a vision of a hellish future to come. It was a vision of a present and existing dystopia. You know, the, um, the Umbrella Corporation isn't a nightmare around the corner. It's a nightmare that we're currently experiencing. You know, mm-hmm. a- Amazon has barely any any resistance in the government right the function of the state is to prop up and ensure the existence and manage capital and that that's what we're seeing in the resident evil movie partly because that's what we're seeing in our lives right the only thing that's fictitious here are like the zombies and bioengineered super soldier weapon things yeah exactly and and you get this kind of gets underscored in the in that scene on the bridge where there's a couple of um there's a couple of stars agents or stars cops who basically yell at these private military contractors you won't get away with this and it's like at this point in a in a in a in a kind of fictional universe where the state doesn't really exist who's going to stop them you know all these cops can do is kind of call for the mods it's like mods mods <laughs> <laughs> like and once again, once again, the big plan of how, how, what do we do in the face of giant, the privatization of pretty much all things, the, the subordination of any kind of political body to a private capitalist enterprise, what do we do? The answer is, well, we're going to, our newscaster is going to record it and they're going to get an Emmy. Like the big <laughs> idea is, the big, the big idea is like Edward Snowden, but more. 
Yeah, and I think that, that that that's really that's really telling about this again because just like in the first one, right, is this individualistic attempt to 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 bring down a major corporation, right? Like it's it's individualized and it's sensationalized and it's it's not um, holistic, right? Like it's not, uh, and, and it's telling why it's not, right? Like all of this stuff ties in, you know, because because a thorough effort to take down corporate power would include unionizing the workforce. Yep. And that would go hand in hand with exposing its atrocities and and making it answer for what it's done, and all of these things would kind of fold in and blend in together. But this one, uh, this one rather doesn't do that. <laughs> uh, it does kind of remind me that like um, a, a really good book I read uh, recently called "Share the Wealth: How to End Rentier Capitalism," um, where it talks about neoliberalism as basically the proliferation of a rent-based economy. Uh, everything becomes an asset that you can extract value out of. And I'm sort of like, those barricades that Umbrella put up, I wonder who I wonder who those engineers were. Who were those construction guys? Were they were they in a like a in a in a local Teamsters union that came in to put up the big <laughs> Maybe someone should have spoken to them. <laughs> right? Like that is uh that's a lot of like the missing parts of kind of like and this is this is true in the games as well. There's so many like like missing parts of the full conceptualization of what Umbrella is and how it operates. You know, we did we talked about this in the previous episode, but like we're we're hyper focused on like these high profile figures, right? Like, and this is this is I think a microcosm of great man history. But we we like to focus on men with names as as the driving engine of history, and not the working class as a body itself. So this is this is focused on the woman who survived these brutal bioengineering experiments, the 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 masters of this company, its lead engineers, rather than like the janitors and the cooks and like the the uh, innumerable hundreds that would be required to sustain this kind of apparatus. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think this uh you know we're we're starting to get deep and we're we're talking about deep deep uh, historical and life-changing concepts and and i wanted to ask you something deep and life-changing and that's what is the significance of of alice launching a motorcycle at a liquor and then it flies up straight into the air and explodes and then a giant cross falls down and crushes another one to death what's the what's the theological interpretation here i mean this is a really complicated question <laughs> <laughs> But genuinely, two possible ways of reading this. Firstly, um, a uh, I'm not I'm not sure on the strict um, what the what the magisterial definition of a, of a miracle is. Um, <laughs> but but uh, defying and breaking the established laws of physics uh, be, with our magical gravity defying bike um, probably would fall fall into that category. Um, which, if we're if we're if we're going to take a kind of Catholic theology here, uh, we would need we would need there are independent witnesses to verify what had happened, um, and we would need possibly I think one or two more uh, before Alice could be fo- put forward as a candidate for canonization, which is the the beginning of the path <laughs> to, to to sainthood. Um, basically, what I'm saying is, um, I think you need to ask the Pope what he thinks of the Resident Evil franchise. Well, uh, I've got I've got good news for you. Then the next movie is gonna give us uh, maybe dozens of new examples that that could count as the miracles required in her canonization. Oh, 
oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, you know me, like, you know, I, I like, I, you know, I'm a Catholic, but I'm more of like a resident evil Catholic. <laughs> Big scary churches, lots of statues covered in tarps, and our, yep. our primary saint is a woman who's been bioengineered so she can blow up satellites with her brain. <laughs> it's 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 um, the way it's the way the Pope intended it. I I I I think you are completely correct there. Um, Could you imagine how amazing those encyclicals would be? <laughs> uh, 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 I Pope Francis, uh, Holy Father, please let us know your thoughts uh, on the Resident Evil franchise and whether we can pursue the canonization of uh, Alice. Uh, uh, dear listeners, we do not, we never, we do not ask for much. But if you could at the Pope on, on Twitter, or I, I'm assuming he has a Gmail account, um, however, oh, you, however we get in touch with the Holy Father, please ask him to come on the show so we can ask the important questions about Resident Evil and Catholicism. Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure we've had a couple of listeners um, from Italy, at least. So someone must know someone who knows someone. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, sure, surely we must have at least one listener who is actively employed in the Vatican. Just just bump this up the chain a little bit in an email. Get us to at least an archbishop. That's all we're asking here. Um, the other one, the other way that we could read this, of course, is um, the the other figures that are not bound by uh, the physical laws of the universe are angelic beings. Um, you could have this. You could read this as the kind of violent reinscription of. Um, the barrier between life and death. Um, obviously, uh, zombies literally rise from the grave. Um, rest, rest in peace, says the gravestone that we get a cutaway shot of. Um, interestingly, uh, there's a kind of debate over whether a dead body still counts as a person, or because what makes you a person is is uh, your soul. Uh, so historically. Christian theology refers to uh, the dead as the remains of a person because what makes them a person is no longer there. So um, you could you could kind of talk about this another way in the in the in that kind of violent reinforcing of the of the clear and strict division between life and death, which the zombie as a as a kind of ontological category systematically destabilizes. You know, I think I think that interestingly ties us into another one of the points I wanted to talk about, and that's eugenics and ableism. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> which is this is this is the straight. I think this is you know we have a lot of strange ways of dovetailing our conversations together and going from like <laughs> ca canonize Mila Jovovich to ableism and eugenics is probably one of our strangest jumps, but it's going to make sense. Trust me. So I think uh, so we find out at the end of this movie that the crux of the creation of the T virus. Uh, was was because Angie Ashford, the daughter of the scientist who makes the T virus, Doctor Ashford, <clears throat> um, has has some condition that requires her to use different mobility aids. Right, we have this this kind of strange shot of like a really high tech looking Umbrella Corporation style wheelchair uh, with like a, a crutch draped over it. So it's like a it's a, a strange visual. Um, and we have, uh, Angie, uh, is like a little schoolgirl, and she becomes kind of the center of all of these T virus experiments. You know, we even get a scene, uh, where, uh, Alice and Angie are like, oh, you're, you're just as infected as I am. And, and she's been the center of, of the testing and the development of this thing. And then that's, that's a, that's a eugenical experiment. 
you know, and, and people, people with disabilities are often, you know, sucked in to, to visions of eugenics, right? They need to be bred out. And then that's the language that follows it when like, and it's also, um, in, there's like an incredibly ableist vein in this discourse too, because it's, it's individuating Angie's condition, right? <clears throat> it's, it's her problem that she must fix and her family must fix. It's not a larger societal issue that requires systemic change. And I think this movie uh, probably unintentionally plays into these kind of eugenic appraisals of ability and disability. Yes, I think so. Um, the fact that there is no kind of possible acceptance of a social model of disability, the fact that this film is incredibly um, dismissive towards uh, people who use wheelchairs or other mobility aids. Um, and of course, the fact that once again, the, the you know, our, our good hearted scientist was just trying to do something good instead of realizing that, you know, maybe people uh, who are disabled have, don't need to be kind of uh, done away with. You know, when you start picking away at the implications, it's deeply unpleasant, the kind of inciting incident of this film. Yes. <laughs> um, so the only other thing that I want to throw out there before we reach the end of our movie is, again, I have a bone to pick with cinema critics. Yes, uh, let's go. Let's pick another fight. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's a commonly critiqued sequence of events in this movie where where Jill, Jill Valentine and a police sergeant give, give a bunch of like, you know, like give an untrained civilian who's kind of skittish a weapon. And they're like, you'll figure out how to use it. Go kill some zombies. And every, everybody reads this as being kind of an error in the movie because, of course, well-trained, uh, you know, SWAT team members would never do something like that. But I think a better reading rather than that being some kind of plot hole or failure of scripting is just to read that as standard propaganda. You know, where we're we're envisioning Jill Valentine and these police as as flawless and brilliant agents capable of handling any situation with tactical perfection rather than, one, the humans that they are, which are entirely fallible and loaded with all of their own problems, and two, on top of that, like, agents of the state. They're to defend property, they're to instantiate societal norms, right, deeply interwoven in our contemporary moment with fascism and white supremacy, they make a lot of horrible decisions. And so rather than reading that as a flaw of the movie, you know, like it's just, it's so much easier to bust out Occam's razor and just read this as another expression of the propaganda that we're kind of drowning in. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, the thing that sort of baffles me is that people go like film critics clearly aren't picking up on the fact that this film is obsessed with valorizing, um, like, Blackwater mercenaries who in a, in a parallel universe would be murdering Iraqi civilians um, and cops. You know, those are our, those are our heroes. Those are the people that we're supposed to be kind of super inspired by. Um, and this, this whole idea that Jill is some sort of like flawless, perfect soldier. Isn't she suspended? That's why she's at home, right? She's on suspension. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, she's she's a member of this elite unit. Yeah, suspended for murdering trade unionists or something. Like, oh yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Ex exactly. We we know exactly why she's she's on a paid leave of absence or something. Yeah. Uh, what 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 is it? What is it that stars stands for? It's what special. 
Tactics and Rescue? Ooh, I'm, like... I'm, I'm losing Resident Evil Street Cred, but I honestly don't know what stars stands for. All I know is that stars. Stars. Um, so I think stars stands for Special Tactics and Rescue Squad. I think someone can correct me on that. But basically what that means is that there's there's a police unit that's designed to go and murder people who try and occupy their workplace. That's that's what Jill Valentine's character reads as to me. Oh yeah, I mean like one 100%. Like that is literally the function of SWAT teams. They're they're busting strikes. They're they're going after people who are you know defending our community from landlords. They're stopping BLM, right? Like they're not they're not a function of good in this world. <laughs> Of course, there is one final kind of like important message that we can take from this uh, installment in the Resident Evil franchise, um, which is that you should never trust anyone who uses a Sony Veil brand laptop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that that is there are so many fucking shots of that product placement laptop in here. And it is just like. It's the funniest thing in the world to imagine someone just just going to Best Buy to pick up a new laptop and they're they're building a virus that destroys the world when they get home. <laughs> I I sort of love I love the idea that Umbrella uh, have their their you know their bioweaponry department have got like a a deal they've got a business purchasing order in with Sony. It's like oh it's, and the Sony brand guys are like you know I think we should be really interested we should invest in umbrella it's going to be a great partnership for us it's like Sony the electrical choice of people who wish to destroy existence <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, do, I do I do think of that it's just like what, what's the marketing logic here because sure you're, you're exposing your product to people but your product is being used to end the world for corporate greed so maybe that's not. <laughs> Not an ideal approach to advertising. But, you know, what do we what do we know? What do we know? <laughs> that's true. That's true. I'm not a marketing executive. Maybe that's a brilliant way to portray your laptop. Um, any 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 final thoughts on on Resident Evil, uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse? <laughs> Resident Evil colon Resident Evil colon Apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, definitely one of the weaker films in the series, in my opinion. But I think I think we we gave it a good go. Uh, it loves cops way too much, uh, but Mila Jovovich is still cool. Um, LJ's cool. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really that's really everything. Um, well, thank thank you everyone for joining us for this week's mini episode. We'll be back next week. Uh, for Resident Evil 3 colon more Tokyo evil. Drift Tokyo Drift yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can't wait to drift with some drift with some zombies next week we'll see you then thanks for tuning in creeps and remember stay spooky Ha 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 